following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Colossians entitled, Jesus Over Everything. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Colossians 1, 24 through 27. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I don't know if you realize this uh, as Steph was reading, but this is a, a passage. We come to a few verses here that are full of paradoxes. Is that the plural for paradox? Par- paradoxi? Paradoxes? It's full of paradoxes. Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering. He says that I'm here to make the mystery fully known. And then there's the whole piece about saying that he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, which if you're a Christian, this should sound strange to you. Like, what what do you mean, Paul? Filling up what's lacking in Christ? It doesn't make sense. So we either come to the conclusion that Paul is, he's either unstable, he's losing his marbles here, or this is the mentality that fuels citywide revival. I believe it's the latter. I believe that this is the mentality for unlocking the church, to sending the church, to commissioning the church, to living for their God-given mission in their city and in the world. And so I wanna unpack this text under three main headings. We're gonna talk about pain, position, and plan. We're gonna talk about Paul's pain. We're gonna talk about Paul's God-given position. And we're gonna talk about God's plan for the world. Now, pain and suffering are a real and unavoidable part of life. If, if you have a heartbeat, you will suffer. It's, it's unavoidable. And unless you're a masochist, we pull away from suffering. We, we pull away from pain, right? That's one of the reasons, even in our physical body, if you experience pain, you touch your hand to a stove, you have a reflex that you're gonna jerk back from it. You're gonna try to get out of its way. And I think that's part of how we are wired as humans. We, we wanna sidestep the pain because part of us knows that we weren't made to experience pain. Pain wasn't part of God's initial design when we look at Adam and Eve in the garden. It, wasn't, it was everything was good, right, and perfect. No room for pain in that scenario. And so we're wired to avoid pain. We sidestep pain, which makes it strange to hear Paul say in verse 24, I rejoice in my suffering. Now it's even more shocking when you understand or know the extent and the intensity in which Paul suffered. If you go through the New Testament, 
Actually, there, I think there's a document online that's literally a compilation of, of every passage through the New Testament um, where Paul's suffering is mentioned. It's, it's like a 12 or 13 page document, it's huge. And really, I think in, in one way, the New Testament serves as Paul's suffering portfolio. It's his resume of what he has suffered. We see Paul in prison a lot of times, actually, while he's writing to the Colossians in this, this right here, this, this letter that we're reading, he's in prison and he's falsely or, or unjustly in prison. Paul has been beaten with rods, he's been lashed with whips, he's been stoned, and not in the way that is now legal in the state of Illinois, He's been ridiculed, he's been robbed, he's been betrayed, he's been shipwrecked. He's faced uh, wild animals upon him. He's been bitten by snakes. He's been sleep deprived. Moms. He's had to experience bad weather with inadequate shelter. He's been hungry and thirsty, cold and naked. He's experienced a deep emotional uh, Anxiety almost, a concern for all of the churches in the world. He's been run out of town. He's underwent immense spiritual warfare. He's been abandoned. Some of his own friends, some of his closest friends have left him. He's been worn out, he's been mocked, and he knows what it's like to be lonely. Paul has an extensive resume of what it means to suffer. Now, Paul isn't a masochist. You can even see there's passage where he, he pleads with God to take away some of his suffering. He says, I've had this thorn in my flesh. We don't really know what that thorn specifically is, but he's had this pain, this agony that he's pleading with God to take away, yet God doesn't always do that. In fact, in that scenario, he didn't. And in 2 Corinthians, we see just how heavy the weight of his suffering was, how, how difficult his pain was. He says, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Right? It's so hard that we don't even know if it's worth it to be alive. Indeed, we have felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now, Paul is not being dramatic here. Like Paul, Paul isn't blowing things out of proportion. This is, this is in line with the suffering he experienced. His suffering is real, and the pain he feels is real as well. But why? Why, why does Paul suffer to the extent, to the intensity in which he did? What's the cause of these sufferings? And to understand this, we have to, we have to realize that there are three different kinds of suffering. Break these down for you. First of all, there's deserved suffering. This, this typically makes sense to us, right? You did something bad, you violated some sort of law or rule, um, and, and now there are consequences for your actions. Or in biblical terms, your, fi- your sin finds you out. Right? You sin against God, you sin against somebody, you do something, and there's brokenness now. And, and there's some consequences because of those sinful actions. For example, if you steal, right, you're likely to go to jail. If you cheat on your girlfriend or boyfriend, you'll probably break up, right? Those are cons- if, you, if you don't brush your teeth and your teeth rot, right, that, that's part of the deal. There, there's a link to what you did and what you suffer, okay? So, so there's a sense of deserved or almost just suffering, 
Now, in some religions or worldviews, this is the only explanation for suffering. Right? If you're suffering, it means that you did something bad. You, you did something wrong, and you've got to figure out what it is, and you've got you to fix it. Otherwise, for the rest of your life, you're just going to experience suffering. Like this idea of karma or payback, like cosmic payback. God is angry, and he's just going to keep going, going, going. Now, there are some scenarios where, where that is, a, like deserved suffering is legitimate, but there are also scenarios, like in, in the case of Job in the Old Testament, where Job didn't do anything wrong. In fact, Job is in this immense season of suffering. And he loses his family, he loses his wealth, um, his health is falling apart. He, he's really, I mean, the book of Job is just so agonizing to read through to see what he suffered. And, and to add to the misery of it, he's got three buddies that come alongside of him and say, Job, you must have done something wrong, buddy, because this kind of suffering doesn't happen for no reason. Well, as the story progresses, we find out Job... Job is a righteous man. He didn't, he didn't necessarily do anything that brought upon this kind of suffering. And so that means that there's a second kind of suffering. There's, there's innocent suffering. That's where there's no direct correlation to the actions we make or the things we think or, or whatever it might be and, and the suffering we might experience. Now think of it in terms of like natural disasters. There was a tornado that hit the city of Nashville this past week. Right, something like that, what happened? Or the flood that we experience. Is that because somebody sinned real bad and God's, no, that, this is innocent suffering. It's, it's, it's something that happened. Or think of terms of, of a genetic handicap. Right, the, the difficulty that a person might experience as they grow up with some sort of disability. Is, is that because they sinned or their parents sinned and did something wrong? No, that's, that's not that. Or even racial, or, 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 uh, racial prejudice, or any kind of prejudice for that matter. To, to suffer that kind of pain, it, it's not because you did something. It's just kind of how it is. It's how it goes. Or, or if there's a death in the family or you miscarry or something to that extent, like that's not because of anything connected to what you did. And, and I realize this, that the innocent suffering is really hard. It's really hard to suffer when there's no, like, when you can't say, oh, I can fix this. Oh, I know what I did, let me fix this, and you tidy it up, and then boom, problem goes away, or, or whatever that might look like. It's really tough. Because a lot of times, there is no remedy. There's no fix for this kind of suffering. It's just part of what we experience as we live in a fallen world, right? A post-fall, Genesis 3, the, the Garden of Eden, as perfect as it was, came unraveled with sin, and that's just where we are right now. In the midst of a fallen world, now, I just want to tell you, like, this text isn't about either one of these types of suffering. But I know that there are people in this room who are facing suffering. I know that there are people in this room who are suffering because, and their conscience tells them, or I would say the Holy Spirit is telling them, it's because you've, you've, cre- you've committed offense against God. You've sinned against God. You've sinned against somebody else. You've done something wrong and now you're, you're suffering the repercussions of it. I know there are people who are suffering in these seats not, not because they did anything wrong but because of innocent suffering. It's just part of living in a fallen world, right? You, you've experienced, we've all brushed up with suffering in these sense. And, and, and though this text isn't about these suffering, I wanna take this opportunity to tell you if, if you are suffering right now, the gospel has something for you. The message of Jesus has something for you to the innocent. 
to those who are suffering not because of anything they have done, know this promise that Jesus is near to the brokenhearted. A bruised reed, he will not break. And here's, here's the goodness, right? So Jesus is with you in the midst of suffering, but, but on the other side of suffering, Jesus is making all things new. Tolkien says, everything sad will come untrue. Or, or, or the way I think, or I like to say it, if I can find my notes how I say it. What we suffer here on, on this earth, in this life, will be paid back in joy with interest in the next. What we suffer here, what we have to endure here, will get paid back when we see Jesus in his glory in the new heavens, new earth, everything sad coming in true, and then there's interest. And so if that's you this morning, if you're in this season where you, you are experiencing suffering, know that Jesus is with you and he's making all things new. And for those who, who feel the guilt, like I've done something wrong, I've, I've offended God, I've done something against somebody else, man, know this, that, that Jesus paid the price for your sins in full. The, the, your, your sins, past, present, and future sins were all taken to the cross and Jesus was nailed there paying the price for them all. all right, so it's like in a sense, if you were to get a bill for the sins that we've committed against God, it now says, Paid in full. Jesus paid it all. It's the song. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Jesus did it all. And since he took on the wages of sin, which is death, we, we get out of that. He, he frees us from the penalty of sin. And he credits us with his righteousness. So not only do we get to avoid the full condemnation, the full punishment for our sins, but we get credited with righteousness. Now, listen, I gotta say this, because just because you come to Jesus doesn't mean some of the consequences, like the lingering consequences are just gonna clear up like that. If you do damage, there's probably gonna be consequences. But now, these consequences are not punitive. They're not for punishment for your sins. God is using that scenario, the circumstances, to change your heart, to transform you. Now, like I said, this isn't really about those two types of suffering. Paul, Paul has experienced both kinds of suffering. In fact, scholars believe that Paul was actually a widower, like he lost his wife at some point in his life. And so he knew this deep grief of loss. Um, Paul definitely did things wrong. He, in, in the book of Acts, he's, He's held responsible um, at least for the carrying out of a murder, right, where Stephen is killed, the first martyr. So Paul, he's been guilty. He knows, that, he knows what it's like to suffer innocently, but, but that's not what the suffering, uh, the kind of suffering that's chronicled through the New Testament. There's a third kind of suffering, which is righteous suffering, and that is to suffer for doing good. There's suffering for doing bad, they're suffering for doing nothing. And then now we see they're suffering for doing good. And Paul has devoted his life to doing good. He's advancing the gospel. Wherever God puts him, he's, he's proclaiming the message of Jesus. He's planting, we would say, he's, he's making disciples. He's planting churches. He's seen to the renewing of the city. 
Right? Paul is devoting himself to a good work. He's, he's living a godly life before God and before man. Yet, he suffers. He faces hostility. People meet him with malice. And listen, Paul's not the only one throughout the Bible who has this experience. Think about Abel. Remember like Cain and Abel, straight out of the Garden of Eden? Abel gets murdered by his brother Cain. Why? Because he offered a righteous offering to God. He was doing something good. Or Noah, he's listening to God, he's building an ark in the middle of the desert. What's happening? People are making fun of him. Or there's the prophet Jeremiah, or Isaiah, or even turn to the apostle Peter. There is this biblical pattern where God calls someone, they will suffer for doing good. They will suffer on account of righteousness. Now, listen, this is where one of the the places where the Bible is counterintuitive to, to the normal patterns, to the normal ideologies of the world, right? Because the Bible says it's a blessing for us to suffer on behalf of Christ. It's a a good thing to do that. Now some expect that, you know, you come to Jesus, you you trust in Jesus, he's gonna make all your life problems go away. And this is is the mindset of of the prosperity gospel that is really popular here in North America and now is gaining traction like, like third world countries, Africa, South America, where there's this message that's being proclaimed. You come to Jesus, he's gonna make you healthy, wealthy, and happy, right? Your marriage is gonna straighten up just like that. Your kids somehow are gonna start magically obeying you. You, The the tension you have with your boss will just somehow be resolved. Your bank account will surge, right? All of these things, like this idea of, and really what it is is this, this concept of the American good life, like, all the things that I want happening, finally, and Jesus is my ticket to get there. Now listen, if this is your motivation for coming to Jesus, you're gonna be let down. I'm just telling you that. Because there, there is a lot of blessing to coming to Jesus. And some of it might be pro, like prosperous in that physical sense. Like maybe he heals you. Maybe he, he blesses you with a thriving business. I, I, I don't know the extent of what that might, it might look like that in a sense, but listen, that sort of prosperity will be accompanied with a sense of pain. You'll experience suffering. You'll be let down because that life that was pitched to you isn't a life that's in line with the gospel. It isn't a life that's in line with the type of life that, that people who are called by God live. I know that's a hard sell, right? If you're, if you're kicking the tires on Christianity and here I am telling you, like, yeah, you come to Jesus, you trust in him, your life's probably gonna get harder. I realize that. But to follow Jesus is to take up your cross. To follow Jesus means you live a cruciform life, right? There, Christians associate ourselves, like if there's one image that we associate ourselves with, it's the image of the cross. Right? And it's not something pretty that we wear from necklaces and oh, it's so, such a beautiful shape. It's like, that's an execution device. That's a torture device. That, that, 
That is what pain and suffering right there on the cross. That's what happened. And so to follow Jesus means you take up your cross and in the way of Jesus, you suffer as Jesus suffered. Pastor Ray Orland said that there's not one significant Christian story that doesn't include significant suffering. That also means that any, any suffering that, that's invoked because of following Christ is not insignificant. And so the call to follow Christ is, is in a sense an invitation to enter the gauntlet. You know, you know what that, like in, I don't know, anybody play high school football, right? You, you get, you know, a row of guys that have these pads and you run through this tunnel and they're just smacking you, right? And you're trying to get through, right? You're trying to get tough. That's what it's like. The Christian life is like running through a gauntlet. You're gonna hit it. Probably gonna trip a little bit. Somebody's gonna pop you in the face. Might be concussed for a minute. I don't know. But there is a degree of suffering that comes with following Jesus, right? Enter the gauntlet. This could be the title. If Paul were to put out an album, right, this could be the title of the album, Enter the Gauntlet, I think. It's pretty cool. Because Paul is constantly suffering for Jesus. And in verse 25, Paul shows us, he says, like, this is his unique position, this is Paul's position. This is his role in, in the grand scheme of things. He says, I am a minister appointed by God. All right, so we see here, uh, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of my body that is in the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Okay, so Paul is saying here, I've got this unique position that God has called me to be a minister. Now, we have cultural connotations with this word minister because especially if you grew up in the church and depending on if you grew up in like a high church where people are wearing robes. I think a minister, I grew up in a Lutheran church, the robes, you got the collar, the fancy dangly things, the tassels or whatever, right? And they wear that, you know, at least the collars, they wear that in the... Uh, Within the city, you know, it's this, this sign of, of dignity, of honor, right? Where, where ministers are sort of um, esteemed highly. But when you get to the Greek word of this word minister, it, it, it's the same word diakonos that's used for servant. Paul is saying, like, I'm not this fancy minister. I'm not, I'm not this guy that's to be highly esteemed, though Paul is, he says, I'm a servant, right? There's no glamour to what my job description is. There's no, there is nothing sexy about that. I'm a lowly helper of Jesus. I'm an errand boy. I'm, I'm a, what's the thing? Uh, I'm a page boy, right? You need something? Come here. Come here, boy. That's what, that's what Paul's doing for Jesus. Whatever, whatever Jesus calls him, he, he sets out on that work, Paul, as popular as he is, as big of an impact as he makes on the ancient world, he is not disillusioned by his position, by his calling. Paul knows, I'm a servant. I'm here for Jesus. And what's important to see is that there's a link between Paul's position and the pain that he, see, he experiences. 
Right? There's a direct link between his position and his pain and it's made explicit in his conversion which is accounted for in Acts chapter nine. Uh, this is verses 15 and 16. Jesus is speaking, right, to set up the context. Paul is in the midst of persecuting the church. Paul hates Christians. He wants to snuff out the church. He's a devout Jewish man at this point. He believes that, that there's no way that Jesus is God. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. The resurrected, uh, ascended Jesus shows up. He appears to Paul, knocks him off his horse. He says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Well, and, and it's like, why are you persecuting my church? Jesus has this connection with his church so that for Paul to persecute the church and try to snuff the church out is for Paul to be against Jesus. He says, why are you persecuting me? Paul's blinded. There's a guy that comes along, I think his name Ananias. He's like, take him to where he needs to go. Tell him about Jesus. You know? And in this time, Jesus is speaking and he says, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine. Listen, Paul didn't choose Jesus. Jesus chose Paul. Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, right? So here's the calling. I'm 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 gonna call him to me. I'm gonna use him to proclaim to these people, to the Gentiles, to, to the children of Israel, to the people who are in power. The very next verse, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. See, Paul's calling is linked to his pain. Paul's position is linked to the pain he experiences. Now, make no mistake, this is not payback, this is not retaliation, this is not retribution for the persecution that Paul was guilty of doing against the church, right? Jesus paid for all of that at the cross, right? Talk about the past, present, future sins of the apostle Paul. That was all paid for by Jesus, paid in full. But now that pain is purposed. See, pain in God's hands always has a redemptive edge. Suffering in God's hands always has a redemptive purpose. But what exactly is that? What, what exactly does Paul's suffering accomplish? What is he doing? Verse 24. Now, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, some people, some Christians read this and then we get nervous because uh, part of being a Christian is believing that Jesus is all sufficient for all of my sins, past, present, future, like Jesus paid it all, right? That's, that's part of being a Christian is to have that understanding that I don't add anything to what Christ has done for me. I simply receive the gift from him. So we say, what, what does that mean? That, that there was something insufficient in Christ, that there was something lacking in Christ's afflictions? No, that, that's not at all what Paul is saying. In fact, that would be inconsistent with the rest of the book of Colossians and with the rest of Paul's writings, especially the book of Hebrews, where it says that Jesus is this once and for all sacrifice, that there's no more need to sacrifice animals. Jesus is sufficient. Now to help us clear, clear this up a little bit, John Piper, I'm gonna rely on my, my mentor, John Piper here, He says this, Paul's, I got a slide for this, you wanna follow along. Paul's sufferings fill up Christ's not by adding anything to their worth, but extending them to the people they were meant to bless. 
What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ is not that they were deficient in worth of merit as though they could not sufficiently cover the sins of all who believe. What is lacking is that the infinite value of Christ's afflictions are not known in the world. They are still a mystery, hidden to most people. And what, what he's saying here is that, that Paul's suffering, it does not supplement what Jesus suffered on the cross in effect. Paul's suffering broadens the reach of what Jesus suffered. As verse 25 says it, Paul as a minister, uh, according to the stewardship which God gave him, he is here to make the word of God fully known. Now, now this is a double meaning here. To, to make the word of God fully known has two meanings. First of all, uh, to spread the gospel geographically. Right? Paul is saying, I, I'm making this known throughout the world. Right? I'm sharing this message and it's going from place to place. And so the reach of the gospel that, that really... Jesus' ministry, like the epicenter was in Jerusalem, right, and, and the surrounding areas. Now Paul is saying, I'm going from, from Jerusalem to Samaria to Judea to the ends of the earth with this message. And so that's the first meaning of this, is spreading the gospel geographically, that it'd be fully known, it'd be known throughout the globe. But then verse 26 points out the second meaning to this phrase, for, to make the word of God fully known. Now, I, I gotta say this because like anybody who picks up the Bible and says, I know exactly everything that God has said in here, don't listen to them, right? There, there is so much mystery. Like explain to me how the Trinity works, please. How, how is God co-equally three eternal uh, pe- like persons of deity yet one? Like that, how do you explain that? I don't, that's a mystery, Tell me the book of Revelation, right? What's that about? So there is still mystery, but what he's speaking here is not necessarily the word of God in the whole biblical sense. The word of God, that phrase, he's speaking of the message of God, the message of the gospel. Take a look at verse 26. Actually, 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, Paul is saying, listen, in making the word of God fully known, he's, what's he doing? He's revealing the mystery. He, he, he's unpacking this mystery that's been hidden, uh, an ancient hidden mystery that's been double concealed. Not only is it a mystery that's mysterious in a sense, but it's been hidden. And Paul here is taking it, he's making it visible, and he's explaining it. And now this message, this mystery is revealed in the saints, that's what it says in verse 26. It is revealed in the saints, verse 27, particularly among the Gentiles. Now what is this? What is this message that he's talking about? Now to understand the significance of, of the mystery, we have to understand the, the first half of our Bible. Right? We have to go back to the Old Testament because uh, the, 
how the Bible speaks of people, especially in the Old Testament, is kind of binary. There, there's two categories of people. There are Jews and there are Gentiles. There, there are people who are of the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God's chosen people, the ones God has uh, chosen among the nations to bless and to, to, to be their, his beloved people, his uh, desired, possessed treasure. And there's Gentiles, everybody else. Right? So there's Jews and Gentiles. So God has, in a sense, drawn a circle around a group of people. Now, they're, they're, there's nothing that these people did to be deserving of God's choosing, he drew a circle around Israel. He uniquely blesses. He says, I will redeem you. I res restore you. And, and if you go back to this whole passage before where he's talking about reconciliation, right? I'm gonna take you back to the Garden of Eden. I'm gonna restore things to the way it ought to be. He's like, I'm gonna redeem you. I'm gonna restore you. And he's speaking specifically to the Jewish people. Now, it's never been a mystery that God would bless and redeem and restore his people, but now the mystery becomes mysterious because this now extends beyond the Jews, beyond the select people God has chosen from eternity past back in the Old Testament, and now it extends to the Gentiles too. There is a new demographic. So the message is spreading dem uh, geographically throughout the world, but it's also now got a target of a new group of people. Not only is it Jews, but now the Gentiles. Anybody can get in on this. See, one, people who were once outside of the circle of God's care, people who were once outside the circle of God's blessing, outside of the circle of God's protection, outside of the circle of God's nearness, are now brought in. This is good news. Especially, I don't know everybody's you know, heritage, but I, I would imagine a very few percentage of us in here actually share any sort of Jewish lineage, Right? And so that means we are included. We, we get in on this too. See, this is the hidden mystery. This is the plan that God had been laying out since eternity past. Because even in selecting Abraham and his family to bless and, and to be his beloved people, he, he used them as a conduit to bless the nations. God, God didn't change his mind about reaching people outside of the circle. It's always been God's plan to be inclusive, that any and all who would call upon the name of Jesus would be saved. This is God's grand plan. And we see this in the ascension too. When Jesus ascends, he's, he's telling his disciples, you'll see this gospel message go from Jerusalem to Samaria, which are like the neighboring towns, and then to Judea, which is the region, to, to the ends of the earth, right? This, this expansion of the gospel, but also in that expansion of the gospel, geographically, there's a new demographic. This good news of redemption and renewal isn't just for the Jews, but it's for anyone. Because Jesus' suffering on the cross is sufficient to pay for the sins of all people, Paul suffers so that all those who Jesus died to save would hear the gospel. This is God's plan for the earth, for the people of the world. Now Paul's suffering isn't merely a job hazard that he, he tolerates. Like Paul joyfully 
joyfully endures it. He, he says, it, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. So it's like, I'm not even just suffering because of myself. I'm suffering for you, church. He, he joyfully endures it. And this is really the madness of Christianity because we see all throughout the New Testament, rejoice in your suffering. You're blessed when you suffer and, and are reviled on account of Jesus. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. But how? How how can Christians, how does Paul do this? See, the only way to do this is to be captivated by what's on the other side of suffering. The only way to endure joyfully what you might experience in, in, in the immediate context is to see what is on the other side of that suffering. Think of this. Why would a person endure hours and hours and hours of getting a huge tattoo? I've got a couple tattoos. I've got one that goes inside my arm here. It hurt like the dickens. It was very uncomfortable. Why, why would anybody do like that across their whole chest or their whole back or leg? What, what's going on with that? What, it, it's, it's the idea of like at the end of this, man, there, there's gonna be a cool portrait. There's gonna be something, a cool piece of art, something beautiful. Why, why would somebody hike Mount Kilimanjaro Right? Why would somebody put themselves in risk going up a steep mountain and, and facing dehydration and the elements and, and animals, even falling off the edge of a cliff? Why would somebody do that? Why, why, would, why would somebody want to have a baby? Right? Why would you want to go through nine months of just being swollen? Why, why would you, like, and just think of the delivery room. Like, Why? Why would anybody want to do that? It's because the glory, the beauty of what's on the other side of the suffering far exceeds whatever suffering was faced on the road to get there. This is what Peter talks about in his epistle, 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice insofar as you share the sufferings of Christ that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The glory's on the other side of the suffering. And that's why Paul can rejoice in the suffering. He's captivated by the glory that's beyond it. He is enamored with what God is doing to redeem and to reconcile and to restore the people who have been far away from God. And listen, this is more than just handing people their get to heaven card, right? Oh, you believe in Jesus? Here's your punch card to get, you know, get through the pearly white gates. That, that, that's not... That is such a small view of Christianity. See, what Paul is, is just blown away by is the fact that God would move towards sinful people to reconcile us and then not just get close, but to now indwell our hearts. Right? To, to see the glory of God, all that God is, now in our own heart and soul as we believe in Christ. See, Paul sees that, that when we have Christ in us, the hope of glory, what, what God is doing by coming in us, he is enhancing humanity now and forever. Without Christ, we are just shells of the people that we were meant to be. Right? The, the fall has corrupted us. The fall has left us in a broken state, but God reconciling us to himself through Jesus, God moving in and living and dwelling in our heart. This is the glory of God brought near. 
This is the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? This is crazy. If you think this is normal, like, you gotta go read uh, Rankin Wilborn's book. It's a great book we have in the lobby there. It's called Union with Christ. It will blow your mind. That God is dwelling within us, that Jesus is now residing in our hearts, that this, is, this means the glory is near, and the glory that's near here now in the present circumstances is pulling us forward to the other side where it will only be glory, no more suffering, every tear wiped away, every pain pushed out, only glory. This is the power of God in salvation. And Paul experienced the power of God and he demonstrates this in his weakness. Paul doesn't come in power, he comes in weakness. He's suffering. And in that suffering, Paul makes waves. Like Paul and his band of brothers turned the world upside down with the message of the gospel. Now I wonder what might happen in our city. I wonder what would happen in Moline, Rock Island, Milan, if we shared Paul's mentality, what would God do through us? Now, I'm not saying anybody, anybody becomes Paul. Nobody sets out to go suffering just for the sake of suffering. Suffering for the sake of suffering is stupid. Don't do that. But we as Christians, when we put our hope and trust in Jesus, we become servants of God. That's part of our identity in Christ that we are now servants of Jesus. We have been enlisted for his mission because we are products of his mission. Or in other words, if there were no Paul in his ministry, there would be no us. There would be no church today because Paul was the minister to the Gentiles. I wonder what it would look like if we were to serve Jesus in every area of our life. Like how would we make the gospel known in our households, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, where we work out, where we eat and play? What, what, what could God do? I think, I think with special intentionality, right? With, with this mindset of I am here to serve Jesus. I know his mission is to make himself known to all peoples. And I mean I start living with this intentionality, with this gusto for bringing outsiders in. I'd probably, if I share the same mentality as Paul, who suffers for the sake of other people so that they would hear the gospel, I bet we would be people who are likely to sit down with people who are going through their own season of suffering, to to pour ourselves out, the the, uh, relational and emotional exhaustion that comes if they're grieving the loss of a child, if they're struggling with their marriage, Right, we would be people who enter into that suffering so we could bring with us the message of Jesus and his redemption. We would be people who would be glad to be discomforted by leaving our own comfort zone to befriend somebody who needs Jesus. We would be people who would maybe... I think this is really a first world problem kind of suffering, but people who sacrifice our calendar and our plans to, to give up a, a, a Saturday morning to serve with our missional community and our group mission. Right? Finding a place in our city where, man, we can bring the light of Jesus in there, whether it's by, by deed or by word. The impact of 
the sacrificial living, right, of, of living generously, being hospitable. Uh, we would have a willingness to be embarrassed on account of Jesus. Right? It's one of the things that I hear all the time. is like, man, I don't know how to talk about Jesus in a normal way. It's like, I, I don't know if there is a normal way to talk about Jesus. Like, what he did is supernatural. Who he is is supernatural. Like, there's no way to just, like, fit it into a conversation. Like, you might get embarrassed. But, but if you understand God's mission, what he's trying to do through you, oh, that'd be an embarrassment I would gladly put myself into. What about planning a church? May, listen, I heard somebody say, and maybe it's John Piper, he said, the church planters, the pastors, the missionaries, and martyrs of 30 years from now are in rooms like this today. Like, what would it look like? Is God calling you to go? Is God calling you to plant a church, to be a pastor? Is God calling you to step up and to, to, to sacrifice yourself in a sense of being a missional community leader? What would that look like? I, I think that's something for us individually to, to wrestle out uh, to wrestle with Jesus about, to, to talk about in our mission communities, what does it look like to suffer well for Jesus? Because the reality is that Jesus is calling us, his church, to suffer with him in ways big and small so that the people in our city and beyond would know the mystery of the gospel, so the people would encounter the resurrected Jesus, that they would know the Jesus who is making all things new. There are people in our city that Jesus died for that haven't yet heard the good news. Let's go. Let's tell them about him. See, our momentary suffering, our, our inconvenience, our momentary pain could give someone comfort for eternity. Do you realize that? Like, just think of, think of Jesus. Jesus came, he lived 33 years. Like, 33 years in the grand scheme of eternity is a very small window of time, okay? Jesus entered into the brokenness of humanity. Every pain possible he was sub subjected to. And then some. He, he entered into this world. He, he sacrificed himself in every way so that we would be brought in as God's people. See, your momentary suffering could mirror what Christ has done for you. That, that momentary suffering could give somebody the comfort that they're looking for for eternity. In fact, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, he, he, he sees it in the grand scheme of eternity here. He says this, this light and momentary suffering prepares for us an eternal glory. And when he weighs it out, he says, the suffering we face here is completely outweighed by the glory that's to come. It's not even comparable. See, suffering to connect others with Jesus is hard, but it's always worth it. It's what we are called to do as servants of Jesus. Now this will seem too daunting, this will be impossible, unless you see the immense sufferings of Jesus. Right? Unless you see the magnitude of what Jesus suffered on your behalf to make you right with God, to reconcile you, to give you a new life, to make your future incredibly bright. 
And so this requires us, church, to keep our eyes locked on Jesus. To keep our eyes focused on what he has done for us so that our lives might reflect his suffering so others might come to know Jesus. I hope, if you're hearing this for the first time, that you would see what Jesus has done for you. I hope that you could see every sin laid upon him, every little ounce of wrongdoing paid for. I pray that you would see how Jesus is with you in the midst of suffering, how he is making all things new. I pray pray that you would latch on to Jesus this morning. And for those of us who belong to Jesus, church, let us joyfully, let us joyfully pour ourselves out to advance the gospel that we might fill up what is lacking in the church, right? To fill up, if if the analogy that Paul uses here is that the church is the body, right? If if Christ is the head of the church, like we profess here, here, uh, uh, boom, that passage, if Christ is the head of the church and the body is, is lacking, that means that there are more limbs that are being attached to the body day by day. Let's connect people to the source, to the head. Brothers and sisters, let us suffer joyfully in service to the hope of glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. Nobody else could suffer the way he suffered and nobody else could do what he did to accomplish what he did for us, God. We, we thank you for that atoning work, that sacrifice, God. His whole life, he was the man of sorrows. And his sorrows are, are most evident when we look to the cross and we see him beaten and ridiculed and mocked and wounded because of what we did. And this, this table here, Father, shows us the agony in which he suffered, that his, his blood was shed, his body was broken so that ours would be healed. Father God, would you make that real to us this morning as we take and eat? Would this meal supplement us? Would it, would it fuel our mission to reach those in their city who are lost, God? Would he be glorified? Would your plan come to completion that we would see every tongue, every tribe, every nation proclaim and profess that Jesus Christ is Lord? God, we ask that you would use us in a mighty way in our city and beyond. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.